We spend tens of billions of dollars each year on medical research. What do we need to do differently to make sure this research creates better treatments and cures for patients? Welcome to this special report on future medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. And joining us to discuss the need to overhaul the way we undertake medical research is Mr. Scott Riccio, founder and director of Accelerate Progress, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to increasing the speed and efficiency of the systems that most directly impact patients fighting cancer and other life-threatening diseases, and Dr. Philip Schein, visiting professor in cancer pharmacology, University of Oxford in England, and president of the Schein Group, which provides consultative services to the pharmaceutical industry. For purposes of full disclosure, I'm a recent addition to the policy advisors of Accelerate Progress. Mr. Riccio and Dr. Shine, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Shine, in 2001, you published a white paper in the Journal of Clinical Oncology entitled, The Case for a New National Program for the Development of Cancer Therapeutics. What did you propose, and has any of it become part of the medical research landscape in the intervening seven years? Well, let me start by sort of setting the stage for our general discussion. Uh, <clears throat> as we all know, cancer is an extraordinarily uh, important healthcare problem in the United States and the world, with over 1.4 million new cancer cases being diagnosed each year and an estimated 560,000 deaths during the course of 2008. Costs associated with diagnosis and care, of course, is just absolutely enormous. So as a health problem, it is absolutely critical it is the second leading cause of death overall in the United States and in uh, individuals under the age of 85, it's the number one, and it's increasing each year a bit. We've had a fairly dramatic response to the problem dating back to 1971 with the initiation of the National Cancer Act, and we're now beginning to harvest the fruits of that effort. This 37-year effort has resulted in indications of improved survival for uh, some forms of cancer dramatically improved understanding of the biology of the disease, and more importantly, for the purposes of this discussion, an extraordinary set of new opportunities for the field of developmental therapeutics. And our lexicon has changed. We now have oncogenes, tumor suppressor genes, signaling pathways, growth factors, apoptosis, angiogenesis, and I could go on. Each of those offering an opportunity to address this overall problem we call cancer. And, of course, what we have learned is that cancer is not a single disease. It's sort of a generic term for what we used to describe as 100, and now many hundreds of different diseases based upon our ability to provide molecular profiles for individual cases. And that speaks to the nature of the challenge we face, a huge, diverse range of disorders in which we must develop individual therapies. Now, having worked in the field for many years, my original entry point was 1966 when I first went to the National Cancer Institute. I was somewhat frustrated and disappointed with the level of progress we had made. So in 2001, I did write of that article, A Case for a New National Program for the Development of Cancer Therapeutics. And my frustration related to the inability to exploit, capitalize on the opportunities we provided. And perhaps the central point of the argument were the number of new cancer therapeutics that were being approved and therefore made available to the public each year. In my estimates over various years, it's been in a range of two and a half new treatments. 
and some, some years perhaps as many as five, six, but really not much more. And what we're trying to address here is, again, not a single disease, but hundreds of different diseases. It does not compute for us to make this vast effort over several decades with the enormous investments being made by the, both the public sector and the form principally of the National Cancer Institute's program and all its sponsor programs, as well as the private sector in the form of the pharmaceutical industry, the biotech industry, many foundations that that make contributions, to get this type of yield, it seemed entirely too low. And as a result, what I did was, in that article, is dissect the efforts and contributions of the various organizations and contributors to the overall effort, what they were doing and what they were not doing adequately in order to respond to the overall public need. Now, I left no sector untouched, and I think in terms of what has happened since There has been some response, perhaps not directly to the article, but this was not the single voice in the wilderness that was being spoken. There were several others who lended their support to the need to have a top-to-bottom look of what we're doing. I think one of the recommendations I did make in that article was for the FDA in particular to examine their policies as to how new drugs are approved and to convene in public a group of advisors who would discuss what should be the criteria for the approval of a new anti-cancer drug for each of the major diseases. That has taken place. I'm not sure it's had as much of an impact on the thinking of the FDA as perhaps I would like, but nevertheless, that process has begun, and we encourage it to go further and for the FDA to become a partner to the National Cancer Program as opposed to simply the recipient of the applications that are made by the drug sponsor and to participate in the process of trying to expedite the review and approval of new cancer drugs so that they are made available to the public as a whole. And Mr. Riccio, so are these ideas, the seminal ideas that were in this article, do they help form the basis of what Accelerate Progress does, and how are you getting them implemented? They absolutely do inform the activities of Accelerate Progress. I was fortunate enough to come across those papers shortly after founding Accelerate Progress, you know, based on my own frustration with our lack of progress in translating progress in the clinic and progress in understanding the the biology of cancer into actual patient benefits and, and access to those benefits for patients. I think Dr. Shine said it exactly right, which is, you know, there was a a need for a real top-to-bottom evaluation, what we generally refer to as a systems analysis that just says, you know, let's look at the entire system and all of the constituents. This is the other thing that I thought was so powerful about Dr. Shine's papers is that, you know, as he said, he left no stone and no group unexamined. And I think that that's important if you want to take a systems analysis view, which we do, to say, There are an awful lot of different constituents within this system and affected by this system, and all of them need to be examined and brought to creating meaningful progress and meaningful improvement in the the system. So that's definitely the focus of Accelerate Progress, and, and that's really where we focused our policy efforts is on bringing those disparate constituencies together, bringing expertise from these many groups, whether they're in academia or in industry or they are physicians who treat patients or clinical researchers or patients themselves and advocate groups and and beyond and bringing them all to the table, bringing expertise from all of them while ensuring that we're beholden to none of those individual constituencies so that we can continue to be that independent, credible expert that can help drive progress throughout the system.
If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a special report on future medicine from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss the need to overhaul the way we undertake medical research to drive better treatments and cures to patients is Mr. Scott Riccio, founder and director of the not-for-profit Accelerate Progress, and Dr. Philip Schein, visiting professor in cancer pharmacology at the University of Oxford in England and president of the Schein Group, which consults with the pharmaceutical industry. So, Dr. Schein, give us an idea of some of the individual specifics that were in that report. What are some of the things we should be doing that we're not doing? I think we can truncate the current very lengthy and very expensive process that is currently used, the systems we use for the development of a new cancer therapeutic. As you can appreciate, it's a very long process, estimated to be 10 or 15 years. Actually, for cancer drugs, the numbers have been assigned for clinical development, so the entrance of a drug into clinical testing to the point where it might reach the stage of an FDA submission is estimated to be about eight years. The costs associated with development are, again, estimated, but for a cancer drug, roughly a billion dollars overall, given the sunk costs associated with those drugs that fail and technologies that have been tested but fail to meet the standards of uh, of validation. And it takes so long for a new therapeutic concept to be tested and validated that one has only a few opportunities during a career to see a few drugs perhaps make it through this maze. Something needs to be done to shorten and to make less expensive that development. And I think we can start from the very beginning. The systems that we have used up to now for determining whether a drug has the potential of making it as a cancer drug for for humans, those systems have largely failed. Whether there's been very little prospective or retrospective validation of how we judge whether a new chemical or new biologic can make it. The only validated model in my mind is the human subject And, of course, that carries with it certain ethical requirements in terms of how we evaluate a new cancer therapeutic in the first patients to determine safety initially and then efficacy. But there's no substitution for human trials. And I think that the time and expense that goes into testing in the laboratory cannot be justified. I think once one has a research hypothesis that appears credible, I think the next step is to look for ways to move it quickly to human testing. What do we do right now? So let's say we find this compound. What typically happens to it, and what would you cut out to move it more quickly to human testing? Let us say there is a new signaling pathway, which is identified that looks like it's important for the growth of certain forms of cancer. And we have an agent that can either target a receptor or some aspect of the pathway and interdict it. I think if one can make the chemical, the biologic in sufficient quantity to meet certain standards, specifications, If one can formulate it, whether it's for intravenous use or oral use, one should move quickly into human testing. Some of my own research going back several decades, but confirmed, has demonstrated that animal models for the testing of safety of drugs, for the examination of toxicities, are largely ineffective and inefficient. Most of the predictions are not things that one observes in humans, and the animals can grossly overestimate the toxicity that might be expressed on a specific organ. Given that, the process of animal safety testing should be truncated quite a bit, largely to the estimation of a safe starting dose. And paradoxically, in a conservative environment such as the UK, 
Such principles have been adopted some some decades ago where we do an extensive amount of preclinical animal testing before the introduction of a, a new therapeutic into the human species. There are new guidelines provided by the FDA for a so-called treatment IND for the ability to examine a new therapeutic without the extensive toxicologic testing, though very few uh, investigators or drug sponsors have used it. But the intent is to get sufficient testing in the preclinical systems to allow you to do human pharmacology to determine not the usual maximum tolerated dose, which is typically the endpoint of a phase one clinical trial, but to determine whether or not some biologic correlate of efficacy, a so-called surrogate, can be affected with the agent under evaluation. This assumes in many instances that there's an appropriate biomarker available for that purpose or that one can use ancillary testing such as PET scans to determine whether the tumor is being affected. The doses are relatively modest compared to what might ultimately be proven to be the full therapeutic dose, but a way to sort of quickly validate the hypothesis that a new agent might be efficacious by obtaining data in the most relevant species, which is the human, and bypassing a great deal of the animal testing, which has been shown over decades to be not terribly predictive and certainly wasteful in terms of both time, costs, and the sacrifice of of animals, the generation of documents that are, are largely not well understood and certainly not used. If we were to do this, how much time and money would you say we would save for the average cancer chemotherapy research trial? Well, I can't give you a specific dollar number because there are other costs associated with it. And of course, clinical testing, which is a subject unto its own, contributes extensively to the overall burden of costs associated with the development of a new therapeutic. But I think it would make a meaningful impact and more importantly would set the tone for what we're trying to achieve, which is to do the things which are responsible and ethical, but not to be wasteful and inefficient when the need, which is, comes in the form of the delivery of an effective and safe therapeutic to the cancer population, is the ultimate goal. I'd like to thank our guest, Mr. Scott Riccio, founder and director of Accelerate Progress, and Dr. Philip Schein, visiting professor in cancer pharmacology at the University of Oxford in England, for joining us to discuss the need to overhaul the way we undertake medical research. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and you've been listening to a special report on future medicine from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com which features our entire interview library available through on-demand podcasts. And thank you for listening.